Welcome to Rowan Book Pod. I'm your host, Sarah, and this month is Pride Month. This is part three of our series on found family and queer romance, with a focus on trans representation in romance and speculative fiction. Today I have with me author May Peterson. Welcome, May. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you here. And you've written The Lord of the Last Heartbeat. Yes. Correct. Which um, <laughs> came out from Karina last fall. September. So, tail end of summer. Okay. I'm in the middle of rereading it right now, and it is an absolutely beautiful book. Oh, thank you so much. It's, like, so spooky and macabre, and, like, there's so much magic and singing opera boys, <laughs> and it's just, it's so great. To quote one of my friends who was, when they she was reading it, uh, she was like, oh, the bear shifter's about to lose his pants, and he just said, ta-ta, thank you for your use. Yes. Had to say goodbye to those trousers. He's gotten used to that by now. Which, <laughs> with a lot of shape-shifting stories, you know the clothing issue is never always addressed. Yeah, well, I think that's a funny, that's a, kind of an amusing thing about some shifter stuff, is that I've, I've read shifter romances or, like, paranormal with, with those shifter elements where sometimes they really go wild with the jokes they can make about that, and I kind of love it. But yeah, sometimes they kind of do like, you know, like maybe more the kid, the kid friendly version where they have clothes that change with them. And, you know, sometimes that's appropriate. <laughs> but um, it, in real life, you know, it's the kind of thing where you'd be like, man, that'd be one of the things about being a shifter is you wouldn't want to change in public very much, would you? Because you, first of all, ruin your clothes. And second of all, it's like, you know, once you turn back from their form or whatever, there you are. Stark naked. <laughs> I, I love hearing someone say that they're rereading it too, because I always feel like that's one of those things that's a kind of a, a big compliment for a writer to hear is that someone wanted to read your book again. Uh, I'm a big rereader myself. Most and... of the rereading I do is generally on audio only, but this one doesn't have an audio. And I was like, no, I need to right, reread right. it because it's great. So I think well, you had I... mentioned that there was going to be an audio book. So I I'm not actually sure about that because I haven't I ha, I know I've heard a couple people mention something about the audio for it but I haven't had a formal communique about it but audio is one of the formats that Karina does do so I'm not sure exactly would you consider Lord of the Last Heartbeat to be like a horror romance Yeah so this is a neat kind of a neat question and a neat conversation because I have I have noticed a few different people use some different genre descriptions for the book and I when I um pitched it when I pitched it to my agent and then when I pitched it to Karina the description that I chose was I think it was dark fantasy romance and I also called it romantic fantasy with uh, dark fantasy with horror, or I'm sorry, suspense elements. So that overlaps with horror, because when I say dark fantasy, um, my understanding of that term is dark fantasy is the the, um, kind of the synthesis of fantasy and horror. So it's fantasy with horror elements in it. And I think that's a little different. I consider that to be a little different than paranormal. And I wrote a blog post about what I think the difference is between fantasy and paranormal and kind of similarly between both of them and horror and basically i think the reason the difference matters is not so much do they think oh you're you're calling my book the wrong genre you need to stop it's more just it's interesting to me why people choose a certain description and so i have seen a lot of people say oh this book is a lot of strong horror elements to it and uh, some of them said they didn't quite see that coming i think the marketing does I think it's listed as horror in some categories, but I think what is, what some of that is is there's a little bit of a blurry line sometimes between suspense, paranormal, and horror. Yeah. And they can all overlap with fantasy. And of course, this book has a lot of suspense. It's kind of got like a thriller element to it. Was the, it the, hard to pitch like a multi-genre? I didn't, I didn't believe that it was. But I did have a little bit of a concern back in the day that uh, I wonder if people will kind of say, well, we'll take fantasy romance and we'll take romance with suspense or horror elements. I don't know if we'll do all three. But that did not turn out to be a problem at all. My view was they they run together. All of it runs together pretty well in the fantasy aspect of the book. So 
to me, the, the kind of key difference between what I would usually call paranormal and usually call fantasy is that I think fantasy tends to signal to the reader a kind of mythical worldview where we're kind of talking about folklore and mythology being integrated into the world. So, you know, magic is usually a big part of that. You might have mythical creatures. And a lot of the time uh, we think of fantasy as being medieval, but of course it isn't always. But even when it's not, we might include creatures or powers or so on, um, or, or cosmologies that we think of as being very mythical and kind of ancient. Whereas paranormal, I think, suggests almost more of a scientific worldview where, you know, I think of like the the book Dracula, where part of the story, and that's an old book, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, but part of that story still is you have a man of science kind of relating the spooky paranormal vampire to the rational world uh, of the modern world at the time that had a more scientific worldview. And I think that's sort of baked into paranormal to an extent where we're kind of, that's why we use the word paranormal, right? Is we're kind of looking at the contrast between the normal and the paranormal. Whereas with fantasy, I think they're more together. The, the fantastic is normal to an extent. Yeah, so that makes sense. That's why I call this book fantasy. But I also think stuff like shifters and vampires suggests paranormal to people because those are common elements of paranormal. And I call those genre markers. And so I think it's completely legitimate to say, I, I consider this a paranormal romance. It has those paranormal markers in it. And so it, it's about what that says, because you want to be able to say to the reader, this is what you can expect. So if a reader says, I want to tell other readers they can expect the kind of things they enjoy in paranormal or the kind of things they enjoy in horror. Absolutely. They should use whatever description I think works. And um, so, so I, after the fact, uh, when I saw people using the word horror and the word paranormal, I was like, oh, yeah, I see why you're calling it that. At the time, I guess when I was writing it, I, I just thought fantasy, you know. But it, it's, it's completely fair to, to use the words horror and the word paranormal. So I, I think it kind of depends on, on what the reader is looking at and what they want to say when they choose that description. Uh, so kind of a long answer to your question. I, I would call it horror if that's useful to the reader who is thinking about picking this book up. Uh, it's got ghosts. It's got a lot of spooky elements. And it's got the kind of suspense that is supernatural suspense. And I think if you like that and you uh, you like that about any in any genre, this book has that. So if you if that makes sense to call that horror, then I'm completely fine calling that horror. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. It's all all dependent on how the reader views things and mm-hmm. what corner of genre fiction they've come from. I have a lot right. of in real life friends who are horror writers, and they have to yeah. remind me, no, horror is not just all these slasher stories or Stephen King. There's yeah. other stuff to the genre. Yeah, and I'm like, variety. oh. That's right. So I do technically read aspects of horror. The overlap of genres is very fascinating to get into. Yeah. <laughs> what inspired you to um, write the magic system in your in um, Lord of the Last Heartbeat? The short answer is I love magic systems. And I, I tend to cook up little magic systems. And sometimes the magic system is the first part of a fantasy setting that I come up with. And I like for the magic system to have something in it that suggests what kind of things the characters would be doing in this world. And so I thought of the magic system for this, this fantasy setting first. And this was years, I think it was back in like 2010 when I first started dreaming up this setting. And I really liked the idea of ma- mages who have magic coming from a certain part of their body. And part of the reason I like that is a lot of stuff, you know, locates magic in the mind, like in the intellect, for example, where you learn a, a magic language or you learn runes or you learn you go to a school and you learn a technique, which is fine. That's that's a perfectly legitimate kind of magic system. Where Mio's case, he sings. Right. And, and in this world, and I really love a magic system that locates magic somewhere else. It's not an intellectual practice. It's, for Mio, it's very, 
physical. It's very emotional. The same way, you know, I think of myself as a writer and how much something I like to say to people is you write with your body, you know, and I don't just mean when you're sitting in your writing chair or you're standing at your writing desk that you're using your body. I mean, you kind of have to feel the story come up almost kind of from your belly. There's something sort of mysterious about it. It's kind of subconscious. I think a lot of writers talk about that, how you kind of dig down into your into your soul kind of, and you you feel the story somewhat. It gets you worked up, at least for me. I like this saying that some people say, which is you write hot and you edit cold. You, know, you kind of get heated up when you're in the story. And for me, I, I worked through a lot of personal uh, memories and pain and issues when I was writing this book. And a lot of that came through with Neo. I guess part of what I was trying to communicate with this magic system was for the characters that have magic in this, in this world, their magic is always a really, it's part of who they are not just the choices they've made or the skills they've learned, but it's 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 part of who they are in a way that they couldn't get rid of it if they tried, and even if they could, they wouldn't want to. Even even the parts of the magic that are maybe hard to have. You know, Mia's mother's magic is located in her left eye. Um, and then I have the, the new character in one of the later books that I'm writing right now. Her magic is actually in her hair. Ooh. Um, so like almost like a Rapunzel style magic hair or like more uh, there's, some, there's some overlap with that. Uh, strictly speaking, her magic is located in the crown of her head and it's called the Holy Crown. And so it flows out into her hair. Okay. Um, and so she could, they could use her hair to do mag- some magical things with. Um, but so I, the, hope, I hope so, that'll be fun. But. So the series, the next book, is that a different couple or the same uh, couple? Oh, the next book that's coming out is a different couple and actually a totally different part of the world. And that that one is the Immortal City. It's coming out in August. And in this, in that book, it's it's in a completely different part of the world, but it's kind of loosely connected. The, the setting elements are connected. Um, and then the book I'm writing right now with the character I just described, that'll be the third one that comes out. And uh, that's more closely connected, but it's a different couple. So it's well, kind of... That's, that's really know, cool. I, I look forward to magic hair. Yeah. <laughs> to jump from your fantasy setting to another fantasy setting, Sword Dance by A.J. DeMoss, which is a mm. Mediterranean historical, all, uh, all, all historical, alt historical fantasy yeah, I setting. What she, I think she calls it alt historical. I her her world building is kind of fascinating because it's like. It's it very fe- very much feels like ancient Greece and ancient Rome mm-hmm. with the names and the setting. I, at first, I, I had a hard time when I first picked up this book. I had a hard time because of the philosophy students. And I was like, I really don't feel like reading about genocidal murders <laughs> philosophy students today. That was not on the agenda. <laughs> <laughs> but then I um I chose it for my book club, and I was like, oh mm-hmm. oh I these two are absolutely adorable. I love. Damiscos. Oh, yeah. And um, Barzada. I, so one thing I love about AJ Demos, uh, and just, just as FYI, I did sensitivity read Sword Dance. So just a disclaimer there that I, I worked with this book. So if I sound a little biased, I kind of am. <laughs> um, not that I think uh, the book is good because of me, but just, but I also happen to be a fan of AJ Demos. And um, one of the things I like about her world building is, you can tell she's a, not just a scholar, but a, a passionate follower of, of history and language. And she constructs fictional, basically fictional languages using a scope that's going to remind us of Greek or, um, for example, the language of the Luth, I think, is probably most similar to maybe Gaelic or Welsh. But they're like they're kind of meant to be like a Celtic uh, nation. Yeah. And the the Zashian the Zashian nation that Barazda's from, I'm not 100% sure what language family she is she's kind of drawing from with using that, but I really like the way she shows those cultural differences and how the different characters speak and think about even just the names they have for things, their gods and their customs, and how she shows. Uh, linguistic differences reflecting those cultural differences and so a lot of characters in the book have trouble pronouncing Varazda's name and, and stuff like that as well 
<laughs> I think one of my favorite cultural communication issues was the names of sex acts. Yeah. How they both had different names. And it was like, well, I've done this. Yeah. Does that mean it's this? Exactly. And like, well, no, but yes. And it's it was just a great example. Just a great example of exactly what I mean. I, I love how she goes right into that and says, like, these people from different cultures do have different ways, not just of talking about things, but therefore thinking about those things. And, you know, in this book, obviously, part of that is Barazda is a eunuch, and Barazda also has a very fluid gender identity. And to the to the Femian culture, you know, this is seen as very stigmatized. And yeah. that's part of Barazda's experience in the book is he isn't taken seriously and obviously we're talking about a time period here where there's a great deal of you know imperialism and war and murderous philosophy students trying yeah, to take over and exactly all their nastiness right we have a really clear antagonistic force and you have a lot of the people on Damiskos's that are part of his culture that are part of that antagonistic force you know they they represent that aspect of their land and I, I like the way she faces that and she humanizes Varazda in that story as being important to, to to respect his experience of that so we're showing an ancient world and an alternative take on on a historical setting but we're we're not flattening the position that different people have in this world we're showing it's just like the just like the real world yeah uh, people are always in different locations in whatever society they're in and that's that's one of the things i love about her work is she always has her characters come from such different places even if they're living in the same city or whatever the case may be yeah i have something human and one night on bucaros but i haven't read uh, them yet um one night i think Blue Coast. yeah i think the one thing i wish with her books is there was a map like that, that there was a map of all these locations yeah that would be really cool maybe maybe we could persuade her to put one up online or something maybe maybe in the next book um there will be a map because i think the next book takes place i assume where Verazda was living at the time yeah i'm not i'm not sure yet but i know she's going to continue with that with the Verazda and damascus's story i believe that's what her next project was from from what I heard her announce, um, and I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, and like you said, Veraz's gender identity is explored in a really meaningful and it, it, I just I just liked how it was explored in this book. It's not mm-hmm. it's not like a painful exploration like sometimes how things can be. It was more like oh this is this is really nice. Yeah. One of the other fantasy books that I really like that deals a lot with trans characters and gender identity um is anna mardal's no man of woman born it's an entire Hmm? but i've heard of i've heard of this book i haven't read it though it's a anthology isn't it it's a short story collection technically the books are all by him most of them deal with the flipping of a gendered prophecy so like um one of them is it's a sleeping beauty retelling and the Aurora character, Claude, is gender fluid. Um, mm-hmm. Some days are girl days, some days are boy days, some days are ask me later days. Um, <laughs> and they use um, she, her, and they pronouns throughout the, throughout mm-hmm. the story. So when they're born, the evil fairies come and the good fairies come and that like the whole prophecy is like, you must be kissed by your true love. The evil fairy or the Dark Fairy Queen, I should say, not the Evil Fairy Queen. The Dark Fairy Queen doesn't gender her prophecy. Mm. The fairy is doing the counterspell, gender the prophecy. Oh, <laughs> So when everyone falls asleep and Claude wakes up feeling like a boy, he's like, what, what the hell? Do I have to wait for a girl <laughs> day to wake everyone up? Like, <laughs> what is That is really get? creative. I um, love that. So he, he seeks out the um fa- the the dark fairy queen is like look can we can we work something out please and the queen's like well sure I guess we can um, <laughs> I, I think that's probably my favorite story in the collection I I love that whole idea of you know we have so many stories even just like fables and such have a 
a lot of gender elements woven into them. I love taking that kind of concept and opening it up and kind of saying, let's, let's turn it on its head and do it in a different way. And it ends up having such a different meaning. Yeah, no, the, the anthology is a lot of fun. It's also on audio. And the, the fun thing about this anthology is each story, and even on the audio, comes with a content warning. And oh, okay. if a neo-pronoun is used, there's a pronunciation guide for the neo-pronoun. So sometimes some stories use Z with the letter Z, and some stories use Z with X. The letter X. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it gives a pronunciation guide and lets you know which pronouns are used if it's neo-pronoun. It's, it's, really, I, it's a really beautiful anthology. Mm, well, it sounds great. This is one of those books that I've heard of, and I, I think I put it on one of my lists, but, you know, like I've talked about on social media, I've, and I know this is not a unique thing at all, <laughs> you always have a massive TBR, and it's like, you add to it faster than you take stuff off, so. Oh, totally. Like, there, I was going through my, my bookshelf earlier, taking books off, and I was like, oh, I still need to read this, and I own it in print. I should probably... <laughs> Stop buying the print copies before I read it. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of my um, favorite aspects of fantasy and alt history and stuff like that is it allows space for trans authors to write whatever world they want, whereas a contemporary setting can be harder to mm-hmm. depict society or how, how you want your characters to live in a society. Like, um, Jay Emery's Help Wanted, it's a little short novella about a magic school, and these two characters have to, I think they have to work together at a, um, an apothecary, and the character questions their gender and the co- and their gender identity in that society, and everyone is, like, very helpful in helping them along their way. One of their other stories, An Offering of Plums, has an agender demon that oh. the character, like, goes, yes. up, like, their, their books are very, they're very lovingly written. Um, like the demon story, like his the like main character's boyfriend goes to sacrifice him to the demon. And the demon's like, how about you bring me a plum instead <laughs> and come spend time with me? But you can't see me ever. I like how Jay writes like his characters mm-hmm. in the, wor- the world settings. That's an author I have on my definitely like uh, to be read soon list. My, I have my sibling who's also trans. A read an offering of plums and and they loved it so i got that recommendation from them pretty recently and the point you made about how you can use world building to show gender different kinds of experiences and different kinds of gender dynamics i think that's also part of what i love about fantasy like we were talking about with sword dance so you know we're talking about found family and how uh how the different characters you know, in some way or another, they are alienated by their cultural environment or they're stigmatized because they're in another land or something like that. And how they ca- they end up creating a community together. For, from the outside, people may not understand, but that's essentially now their family. And um, that is what queer people do, um, what we have to do often. And yeah. especially, especially trans people, especially queer people of color, I think, you know, there are lots of queer writers of color who do also do uh, a great deal of not just exploration, but kind of speaking from their own lives, too, in, in a contemporary setting about that. Yeah. And um, so I, lo- I also I agree that that's a really powerful part of, for example, fantasy. But I think something, too, that's worth considering is how whenever we look at history, for example, or... or um, characters in a contemporary setting who are exploring their history queer and, tra- and especially trans characters of color part of the equation there is there's so much heritage that has been erased stigmatized and uh, by colonialism and you get these books that are about characters reclaiming who they are who their families were and that often includes the gender relationships that are, are now stigmatized in, in modern society, in colonial society. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of those beautiful areas where, so we're talking about how fantasy can explore stuff like that, but also you can see that with, that's an intersection of, of trans and, um, and race that 
trans and queer authors of color. There's so there's an infinite range of stories that can come yeah. from that. And that's you know um, that's the kind of thing we need to encourage and and always be making space for. Yeah, totally. There's a, there's a book that um, is on my TBR list called Black on Both Sides: The Racial oh, yeah. History of Trans Identity by C. Riley Snorton. Yeah. That it looks absolutely fascinating about Black trans people who carved out lives for themselves and spaces yeah. in I think the earliest 19th and 20th centuries I think it was. And E. Ottoman did an episode on shelf love last week or aired last yes. week about trans historical romance and how people were always there. People were making spaces for themselves. I was talking with Nathan Burgoyne a few weeks ago how the story is about queer characters or trans characters that are like the only the only queer in the village. Those mm-hmm. aren't the, like there are people who are alone. That that is that is a truth. But for the most part, right. you never have just one single gay person. Right, <laughs> and, and there's never person. right, and it's also unrealistic to to portray a community as having only white queer people or, or something like that. Because you know, I I kind of think about my own life and how I'm I am very isolated as a trans person. I don't I know very few other trans people except online. And the ones I do know are mostly family or uh, or very close friends of family. But at the same time, I've also found that it hasn't been difficult to find other queer and trans people who are part of communities I grew up with, where part of the, one of the things that kept us apart is how much stigma there was of being letting people know that you're trans or that you're queer. So you kind of have this invisible wall between people. And that is a very real and very harmful thing. But it's, it's so funny how often I can look back and I, and I see that I was actually never the only one, even in the small town I grew up in. And there have always been lots of different kinds it's of It's always kind people. of funny that way when you're, when, right. you, when you're all closeted in high school and then you go to college and you realize your best friend's ace or your best friend's right. gay or trans and... I went to what well, was on paper an all women's college. Most of my friends aren't cis who I met there. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I, I have a sibling who's trans and a sibling who is gay. I, uh, it's funny because I told my boyfriend this, and he says, "Well, what is what is it about your family?" Like, <laughs> because you know, for years people believed like being queer was probably genetic and. I don't know if it is or if it isn't, and I, I kind of think that's maybe the wrong way to look at it, but he's like, it's kind of a, it's, it's, I said, well, the way I look at it is our family sort of hit the jackpot. Um, <laughs> that, that's one way to look at it. There was a, yeah. um, there was a, a lecture, uh, a Zoom lecture that the History Project Boston did a few weeks ago about um, researching your queer genealogy of your own family. Mm-hmm. And it was um, the guy was talking about how like, well, this aunt, uncle and this aunt, all in this generation, none of them married. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder what's up with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, yeah. You can't assume like, no, like just because they didn't marry that they weren't queer, but it's a you, it's an assumption that should be made. Yeah. <laughs> I think another aspect of um, one of the historicals uh, we both read um unsuitable air by kj charles that series in general has a great found family aspect with the bar with the jack and Maeve, and it's just i i just love that series so much right so kj charles is a is a friend of mine and i devour every single book she writes and just just an fyi i also uh sensitivity edited unsuitable air so just disclaimer there. But um, found family is such an important concept for her, and it, it emerges over and over again in her work. And I feel like people who are fans of KJ Charles are like, yeah, duh. Like, you can see that. Yeah, um, it, it's, it's it, everywhere. <laughs> yeah. The Bar is a good example of one of the ways she does that. Uh, and that's a really important part of Insuitable Air, because so much of that book is about family, and it's about... The difference between family as a genetic kind of compulsory system and family as a community and how there's a difference between them because Penn's situation is 
about being compelled not just into a gender role, but into a specific role in a family as an Earl. Yeah. How he can't endure that. That that entails a specific relationship to gender. And that that really is how it is in real life, you know? So when you have, like, this place where here's a bar where the different queer and trans people can meet, can interact with each other, because your gender and your sexuality do have so much to do with where you're from, your your family, what you're included in, in society, and so, and what you're excluded from. And so that's, I think that's why that's such an important concept and why it's a very queer concept, because it is, the oppression of queer people is largely about um, exile from the, the conventional concepts of family or, or the conventional concepts of family in modern society and how we're kind of not supposed to be a part of the family. You know, the, the yeah. ideas are um, generations are supposed to be cishet people producing more cishet people. And it's just not real life. So we often have to take real life and, and bring it somewhere where we're allowed to have it. Yeah. Whether that's a bar or a... When Mark first takes... Does Penn use... Would Pen... So in the book, Penn uses he, him pronouns. I have seen a few people speculate that if Penn were a real person alive today, that he would probably use they, them. Now, that might be true. Um, because, you know, I... Sometimes I... I I use she, her pronouns. It's always been fairly simple to decide that. But sometimes pronouns are weird for me, too. Um, so I, I definitely understand that uh, there are different uh, reasons why people might choose to be addressed in a certain way. I, and they actually is discussed in the book where Mark asks Penn, is it incorrect to call you he? Or, you know, and, and Penn says, basically says, this gendered pronouns as sort of exists for other people no matter what you called me, someone's going to have a problem with it. So I kind of, I kind of let it go. Now, of course, as a trans person, you can't just let it go, but yeah, I really related to that feeling of this is sort of more for others than it is for me. Other people really need to know how to gender me. And that's sort of their problem. And obviously people are going to vary as to how they feel about that. But I, I found that to be a very real <laughs> experience for Penn to express was, uh, you know, this is sort of how I am in relation to others. It's not really something that I feel is, is particularly necessary for myself. Yeah, no, no, that, that makes sense. So like when Penn first goes to the bar, he's never been in a place like that before. He didn't mm -hmm. know that there were safe places like that. Just like how when Rolly first goes to the bar in the first book, he was like, oh, I didn't know that this was a thing I could do. Yeah, yeah. Another thing I like about that is, you know, a lot of the book is about Penn and Greta's sibling relationship. And Greta is not trans, but a, a pretty key aspect of Greta is that Greta is also doesn't conform to the expectations of a woman in her society, particularly a woman who would be related to, a, to an Earl. Because, you know, she's a working class woman. She's a performer. She's an athlete. She is unwomanly in, in according to the standards of her society. She's skilled in ways and interested in doing things that are supposed to be unwomanly. And a lot of that has to do with, frankly, her alienation from the aristocratic family that supposedly she was supposed to be a part of. So here we come back to the idea of, you know, we have siblings, so that's a family relationship, and how they're alienated from their supposed birthright of, of owning this, uh, this estate and this title. And how part of the reason they're alienated from it is not just that they're poor, not just that they're working class. It's also because of their different relationships to gender. And that's a very, I think that's a really key theme in this book is how those differences connect to all these other differences that you can have with, you know, what you're supposed to be versus what you are. Um, and, and that's, true with Mark, um, both Mark and Penn, there's, there's always this theme of what, am, what do people say I should be versus what I really am. Yeah. And that's one of the things that was really powerful for me about that book was it always comes back to that pretty much with every character. And I, and I love how KJ 
uses theme in that way. I, she's not the only author that does, but so many of her books, she takes a very political theme and she fleshes it out in a very emotionally, how do I want to say it? It, it feels very personal in a way that's very um, natural. Yeah. But it's also extremely incisive in terms of having kind of a point of view on history, a point of view on class, a point of view on power dynamics that also has, uh, there's sort of an intellectual quality to it, but it doesn't feel intellectual as you're reading the book. Yeah, it shows that she does a lot of research to the time, to the place. And I know when she does um, start on a book, she reads the popular fiction of that time. Oh, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So that she gets like a feel for what was going on in the popular culture at the time. She, she does a fantastic job and she's honestly one of my favorite writers. It was an honor. Um, I was in uh, England two years ago and I got to meet her at the UK meet. And I was like, spent two days trying not to be an entirely fangirly <laughs> present. I was like, KJ, I love you. Oh, and I can understand. just like, can you just sign this giant pile of books that I now have to send home across the ocean? Oh, yeah. Uh, that would be great. I She's one of my, like I said, she's a friend of mine. So I, I always like working with her. And um, I tend to really enjoy books like that, where there is, you know, I love romance. And some romance is designed to be I think the way I think this is the framing that a lot of people would resonate with. Some romance is more intended to be escapist, where the the idea is to show a relieving, comforting fantasy where we can kind of set aside the problems of real life for a while. And some fiction is uh, so this is true of romance, but it's true of other things as well. Some romance, some fiction is more what I would call cathartic, where the characters sort of jump right into this real life problem and kind of uh, find some kind of resolution. They str- they win a battle in some important way and it, it is not escaping from it. And so they're both, not only are they both valid, but I think they both have an important emotional purpose. I like to call that distinction reader agenda where, you know, sometimes what you're looking for is an escape. Sometimes what you're looking for is a catharsis. And most people I think enjoy both to some extent. I really love that cathartic style of fiction where we kind of go in and kind of tackle something. And her work is always really good for chewing on political topics that way, like I said, in a way that always feels really personal. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite things about her work is just how uh, how political it is, basically, which is the kind of thing, you know, people act like you shouldn't do, you shouldn't have in fiction and you know I, I disagree obviously <laughs> queer romance is inherently political because right we didn't we were denied our happy endings for a very long time and some of us are still are and any books with romance that this is something you know it's been talked about on social media recently and it, it's always coming up is when when you whenever there's stories about characters of color, that's there's always a political element to that. Which is not to say that authors of color can't or shouldn't write escapist fiction, but you know there's a problem of oftentimes white authors wanting to write characters of color in a way that is politically neutralizing and, yeah. and treating it like race race can be ignored. We can be colorblind, and that's not. That's not the reality. You can't no. ignore race either. Uh, and people of color also are oppressed in a way that has to do with their happiness and their love and their relationships and their family. And that's not something that white authors, including white queer authors, uh, should disregard or, or have a right to downplay. And so, again, we kind of come back to you can't discount the the, the po- politics of it, basically. Yeah. Shifting to uh, contemporary romances, E. Ottoman's Documenting Light, that's a contemporary, isn't it? Yes, yes. That's a very good book, too. It's a, it's a contemporary that has a kind of, I want to say almost a historical mood, because history is part of the theme. One of the characters is a historian, and discovering, I, I believe what they're doing is they're researching a photograph about a couple is part of what the characters are doing in the story. And so they're, they're 
looking at the importance of investigating history. And so it has a very historical mood to it. And I think E.E. E. Ottoman's work tends to, but it is a it is a contemporary romance. And that one, that one, I think you kind of come back to the theme of reclaiming the connections that were erased. You know, we want to say this this queer historical couple was not really a couple. We want to kind of deny the connection they had when that was a kind of that was a family relationship that they really had. And it's not fair and it's not just to say that it didn't actually happen and we'll say well we don't actually have proof that they were queer well you know it's hard to have proof when you live in a society that prevents you from having uh, recognized open queer relationships yeah one of the other contemporaries that i really like that has a trans character um and it is reverb by anna zabo which Mm. is third book in the um, Twisted Wishes series Uh and um, David is a he's an ex-army trans man who's in his 40s so he's older he's like he's well established in his in his life and how he wants to live his life and he's unapologetic about it and I think what I really like is we don't get to see a lot of older trans characters in romance everyone's yeah. generally 30 and under <laughs> um, and I, I really That's liked a... his relationship with Mish and how uh-huh. that developed <laughs> it's, it's, it's essentially a bodyguard romance because he's her bodyguard mm-hmm. but the the found family aspect in that is the band like David's like oh I, I don't need to get close to the band I'm just doing a job and the band's like no come 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 to the pool <laughs> come chill with us we want you to be part of the family like come on um and it takes him that long it takes most of the book to be like well I guess I do have a new family now I guess I can have this and not just make this yeah. about this and it, it was... lo- that's a great example of, of that now, that's another book that I haven't read, but it's on my TBR. And um, I, I love the bodyguard aspect because, you know, that's, you know, that's that's one of the reasons I was interested in the book. And rocks, the kind of rock star romance, you know, like that, where I've I've known a few of them where they do use the band as essentially a, a kind of family construct. And they, they use the relationships between the band members in the same way that you would use family relationships in, in maybe another book. And I think that's a great example of how that kind of story can be told. This is one of those books that, uh, like I said, I haven't read it yet, but I'm massive TBR. But <laughs> I love the concept of it so much because it's like band bodyguards. So how is that going to work? So because I kind of love bodyguard romances in general. Yeah. And, and, so and Misha, Misha at the beginning is not like, no, I don't need a bodyguard. I, get, I know I have a stalker, but it's fine. I can handle mm-hmm. this. And everyone's like, no. No, we're getting a bodyguard. <laughs> we need a bodyguard. Things are getting too close now. And I, I just really like the relationship throughout the book and how that develops. The audiobook for it just came out last week, I think. Oh, um, really? So all three of them are on audio now. Um, and they're narrated by um, Greg Tremblay slash Greg Bordeaux. <laughs> what I was really interested in that you had read was... Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars. Oh, yes. I was actually just going to say that's a great book for this theme. I try to recommend this book every opportunity I get. It's one of my favorite books ever. <laughs> um, and so it's by Kai Chung Tom, and it is not really a romance. It's a, it's a fabulous story. Uh, you know, so it's very vivid and surreal there's a lot of magical quality to it um although it's not exactly fantasy and it's a very unique story but one of the things i love about it is it's about a community of trans women who live in the city of gloom and how they resist and fight for themselves and fight for their safety and their freedom and how they uh, protect each other and the different relationships that that exist between the different trans women living in this city and so many of them are trans women of color and the author herself is a trans woman of color and 
to talk about found family, I immediately think of this book because, you know, they're sisters together fighting for their lives. And so much of the story has to do with the different kinds of love and hate and conflict and connection and healing that they experience together and that the main character journeys through um, as she kind of, it's sort of a self-discovery story. And I absolutely adore the use of magical and fantastical imagery and um, kind of world building that paints such a bright picture of the themes of the book. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that happens at the beginning of the book is the main character, if I recall, if I recall correctly, the main character is never really named. Uh, it's always just I. And I don't think any other character names her. She is closeted at the beginning and she's living with her family, with her at home. And there's a day when the mermaids die, where in her town there are mermaids, uh, I think it's uh, in the ocean. And the mermaids are, are huge kind of monstrous creatures almost. They're, they're way bigger than a, than a human would be. But they're beautiful and majestic in this sort of, phantasmagoric way where they have like kind of golden scales and jewel-like eyes and they kind of represent this uh my interpretation of the mermaids was there's sort of this this big possibility of wonder that is always there in the world and it's always kind of in us and who we are and who we could be uh it's sort of our subterranean you know under the sea of our uh of our memories of our subconscious and so on and the mermaids are dying. And so it's sort of like this wonder and this beauty is being lost from the world. And this is what motivates the main character to leave home and travel to the city of gloom and come out and, and live as herself and essentially find a new family. Um, because the, to me, there was a sense of there's something in the world that has to be found again. There's something that has to be given new space to breathe. And this is very real in her, in the character. And so the, the trans women that she lives with in the city are, not only are they essentially her new family, but they help her discover who she always was and who she can be, kind of everything that's in her inner depths. And that includes all the, the anger that she feels uh, because the book kind of touches on themes of trauma and also the possibility for love and mercy and hope that she has. And it's such a beautiful, amazing book with so much vivid, striking imagery and prose in it. Um, so I really recommend it strongly to people because even if, even if uh, you're normally a romance reader and something that's not really a romance at all doesn't quite sound up your street, it's, it's still such a unique, special book. Um, and it really hits so hard on this theme of queer and trans not just self-discovery but discovery through connection with other people where part of who you are is always related to the community you're you're in it's always related to other people and how you know found family the family that you build for yourself uh helps it create who you are and this book just absolutely sings with these kinds of themes and it paints them in big bright letters with all this all this magical imagery all this uh almost spiritual quality that it sounds beautiful like it, it is <laughs> the, the the library has it on audiobook and Ooh, i immediately clicked it because it was available and i was like no oh, this is mm -hmm. this is going on my tbr totally listen yeah. to this now <laughs> You know, the book is called Fierce Friends and Notorious Liars, and I think it's called uh, The Fabula or the Confabulous Memoir or something. Uh, I'm trying to remember the exact subtitle. I believe it is A Dangerous Trans Girl's Confabulous Memoir. I like the word confabulous. Yeah. I feel like and that so, should be used more. <laughs> yeah, and so kind of one of the little threads and the themes in the book is how the, the main character kind of talks about lying and how she lies and lies, she lies to protect herself. And, you know, she lies, you know, at the beginning, of course, she's lying about her identity and how you find yourself in this world where you kind of have to tell a story. You have to lie, sort of, and you kind of lie to yourself. And 
so you're you're kind of always working with illusions, with dreams, you know, a, a fab fabulism, you know, fabulation, meaning kind of constructing a dream, a, a vision, a story, and how she kind of tells a story to herself, and how you can sort of change the story as you go. So, because so much of the story is about learning to tell yourself the truth, and learning to tell others the truth, and how that's actually how you find this is you know this is my interpretation of the story it can be interpreted so many ways but learning to tell the truth about yourself and to yourself is how you find connection because yeah. people aren't going to connect with you unless they can actually know who you are and how it's hard for you to connect with people if you don't tell the truth about who you are even even if just to yourself and so i love this dichotomy kind of or this contradiction between the main character being sort of a, a liar um, who is very um, you know she's a trans woman of color living in this city where, where tra the trans women are very mistreated so you've always got to be protecting yourself you've always got to be looking out against um, the people that are going to hurt you and so you've got to do anything you can you got to use lies you got to use violence but Doing this is also kind of how she finds her way to peace and to truth. And I just eat that kind of stuff. <laughs> I, just, I love no, it, how... it. It sounds absolutely amazing. Like, mm -hmm. I, I'm all for this. And I don't yeah. tend to read too much outside romance sometimes. Right. Or I mean, outside of, of genre fiction. Right. Yeah. The last story I wanted to do a quick talk about is The Craft of Love by E. Ottoman. Mm -hmm. um, it's, an, it's a novella. It's about a metal worker and a seamstress, and the metal worker is a trans man, and his mother had made all these dresses for him mm -hmm. that he never plans to wear again in his life, but he doesn't want to get rid of them because his mother had put so much work into making them. So he goes to the seamstress and strikes a deal that he'll make something for her if she makes a I think it's a quilt out of these dresses so that he has mm. something of them but that they're not a, they're not a dress anymore and it, it's just it's a very it's very short and I just very very sweet um and how it's written and I, I, just, I just love all of these um, yeah that's another book that I have hit that I really want I'm looking forward to um I have one that I it's I think I'm currently reading, uh, but yeah, Craft of Love really looked like a good and interesting book. I love that concept, by the way, that the trans man with the dresses, you know, and then the trans woman seamstress using the dresses. Like that's what I remember happening. I'm not 100 percent positive, but a, I believe that was. <laughs> that yeah, was that's that. such a profoundly trans concept. <laughs> it's such a very deeply trans premise. I just, uh, I absolutely love that. Yeah, no, it, it's, I, I love his historicals because we don't get a lot of historicals set in um, the United States very often. Um, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it's set in late 1800s New York, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. He also has... Um, Doctor's Discretion. Doctor's Discretion, that's the one, uh, that's in New York as well. And that's, that's one I recently started reading another historical with a trans character and a black character um where it's the different roles that they play i think in new york and in the, in the medical industry in new york i think is a yeah. big part of the story i haven't finished it yet but what other books are on your tbr that we haven't mentioned okay so right now i am reading at the moment birthday by meredith russo which is a ya romance it's her most recent release i believe and it's it's a um a trans girl and her best friend, childhood friend, who's a cis boy. And I think a lot, a lot of the story seems to be about her process to coming out and, again, self-discovery and how self-discovery has to do with your connections to other people. And so I'm really loving it so far. It, it has, it does have something to do with how, how few trans women are in romance right now. Yeah, and I can think of two books with trans women in romance. Yeah, I... So that's something that has come up a few times where people have asked for um, recommendations for authors who are trans women who are specifically writing romance. And I don't, 
I, I, Mercy Zephyr is one. Uh, Dr. Nairi Bakalian. Uh, she is, she writes romance, and she's a trans woman. And Mercy Zephyr is a trans woman who writes romance. And Meredith, Meredith Russo writes mostly YA, but there's usually a romantic theme to it. And I think there is maybe one or two others that I have forgotten, which would be, I usually don't forget because I'm always looking for that. A couple of books that are on my TBR for uh, reading are The Eight Kinky Nights by Zan West, um, mm, yes. which is a giant behemoth of a book that I thought was a novella, and then was like, no, this is 400 pages, and it's like, okay. <laughs> and just to FYI, I also sensitivity edited that one. Um, okay. And I, I love that book, and I, I heartily recommend it. And yeah. just in general, I would say Zan West is beautiful with uh, the kind of the kind of escapist story that we were talking about where yeah um i I really like their um nine of swords reverse yeah yeah and i also sensitivity read that one so to disclaim what i one thing i love about what they do is they they take stories that are about usually a lot of times characters seem to be kind of like dealing with trauma or pain or issues that have to do with their disabilities or uh, something like that or being queer and they explore them so gently and so kind of mindfully in the character's life yeah and there's such a theme of healing about it Um, and their work also is so very richly culturally jewish it is it's it's absolutely beautiful yeah, and that's one of the things that I love about that because they show the characters' connections with not only their queer communities, but their Jewish communities and, and usually how they overlap and how that kind of connection is part of their healing, part of that gentle kind of learning to breathe, learning to accept uh, learning to accept your own needs and kind of have the life you need to have that is healing and, and, and nurturing for yourself. Um, but they take that that difficulty of, of trying to find that for yourself and they, they explore it in this very tender way where the story usually does not end up having, it's not a profoundly cathartic story. It, it still has such a, a light kind of a comforting and gentle quality to it, but still has that depth of, and when I say depth, I'm, I'm, this is not me saying that escapist stories are shallow at all. But rather, they they kind of bring in that painful side, but they do it very softly in a way that even if you're not in the mood for the more intense, cathartic media story in that way, you still kind of can process that side of things while you're enjoying this very gentle, comforting story. And that very richly explores the intersection of disability, uh, queerness and Jewishness. Yeah, no, no, Nassar's reverse. It was so, it was very short and very loving and very mm-hmm. soft, and it was, it was really enjoyable. The last two books on my TBR, the ones I, I can mention, are um, Cemetery Boys by Aidan Thomas. Oh, is yeah. my like big, big one of the year, mm-hmm. um, or for YA, anyways. And then um, Felix Ever After by Kason Calendar that came out recently. Oh my gosh. Um, that's Both on my those. TBR, and I think I got the audio for it from the library the other day there there, there's so many trans books that i want to read just trying to play a catch-up right now on my reading right Um, me too (laughs) and the one last thing i want to mention as a resource for pride month is the podcast making gay history has recordings of trans activist marcia p johnson that they Mm -hmm. have on their part on their podcast from an archive of interviews with her oh yeah i think sylvia Um, rivera as well yeah, and Sylvia Rivera, they have yeah. one with her and Marcia, and then one of Sylvia by herself. Um, oh, yeah. And then for a non-trans uh, Black activist, there's also um recording with Bayard Rustin, who worked a lot with Dr. King. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. But it's important to highlight the history that um, black, trans act- black trans activists and Black queer activists have done to pave the way forward, especially right now. So I highly suggest for folks to check out Making Gay History and other um, queer history podcasts this month. I want to learn about Marsha Johnson. Yeah. Um, So thank you for joining us today, May. Thank you.
where can folks find you on the internet? My website is maypetersonbooks.com. Oh, it's all one, obviously one word. And on Twitter, my handle is maidensblade, M-A-I-D-E-N-S-B-L-A-D-E. And I'm May Peterson on Facebook. And my debut novel is Lord of the Last Heartbeat, uh, of course, which you can find on my website. I have uh, my next novel is The Immortal City coming out in August from Karina Press. And then my uh, third novel is to be announced, also coming from Karina Press. Awesome. And you can find Rom Book Pod on Twitter, Instagram and Pinterest. And you can find me, Sarah, at queer underscore reader on Twitter and my book club, Rainbow Readers of Massachusetts, on Facebook. Thank you again for joining us today, May. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Rom Book Pod, Inclusively Yours, a new weekly podcast celebrating inclusive romance, one trope at a time. If you'd like weekly recommendations for inclusive romance, please take a moment to subscribe. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at Rom Book Pod. That's R-O-M-B-K-P-O-D. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, happy reading.